All right, welcome to this listener's commentary on Romans 12, 3 through 21. In our last session, we introduced the whole big section of chapters 12 through 16, which we said really is applied theology all about living as the people of God. And we also looked at verses 12, 1, and 2, which is the header for that whole section, and calls us to be transformed by offering our bodies to God and having our minds renewed. Well, verses 3 through 21 flow directly out of that and, in a sense, intends to amplify or explain verses 12, 1, and 2. In fact, verse 3 begins with the word for, which explains or gives a reason for what Paul is about to say. And the focus of what Paul is about to say is really on our interpersonal relationships, how we live with other people, particularly within the body of Christ, but even outside of that. And so here in 12, 3 through 21, there's essentially three pieces, three chunks to that, 3 through 8, 9 through 13, and 14 through 21. Verses 3 through 8 focus primarily on working together in the body of Christ. Verses 9 through 13 uh, focus on the idea of what it would mean to live together with genuine love and verses 14 through 21 primarily deal with uh, dealing with people who are opposed to you or hostile to you or make life hard for you because of your faith. At least that seems to be the primary focus there. All right, so let's walk down through each of these chunks. Verses 3 through 8, as we said, deals primarily with working together in the church. Verse 3 gives kind of the initial instruction. Verses 4 and 5 gives the rationale for that instruction by means of an analogy. And then verses 6 through 8 illustrates it with seven examples. All right, that's sort of how this part works. So verse 3 says, For through the grace given to me, so Paul basically says, For the grace that I have to be an apostle and to speak, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And so don't have an elevated opinion of yourself. Have a realistic opinion of yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than he ought to think. But he says to think so as to have sound judgment. And so have a sound assessment of yourself, a realistic assessment of yourself. Think of yourself to have a sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Well, what does he mean by that? Um, it could mean that God gave various quantities of faith to each individual, but that doesn't seem very likely. It could mean that we should think of ourselves according to the standard of faith, which some would say is that we all need mercy. And so we should think of ourselves that way as everybody is in need of mercy. And that works. And that's certainly theologically true. And even there's some practical wisdom in that, but it doesn't make sense of the word allotted, right? God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And the idea of allotted is portioned out, distributed out. So what really is he getting at here? And it's probably best to understand it to mean that God has given each individual a distinct portion, or maybe better, a distinct expression of faith to serve the body of Christ. Because that's where he goes in the following verses as he amplifies it and explains it, that each of us have some 
way we can contribute to the body of Christ. We've got a distinct portion or distinct expression of faith to serve the body. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Romans, says that faith here refers to the spiritual power given to each Christian for the discharge of his or her special responsibility. And that makes good sense of the verb meridzo, or which is a lot, or divide up, right? It also makes good sense of to each one, that God has allotted to each one. He's divided up to each individual uh, person, which begins the phrase. So there's an emphasis on our individuality. And it also makes good sense of verse 4 and 5, which uses the imagery of a body and each part of the body having a role to play. And so the point seems to be, rather than comparing ourselves with other members of the body of Christ and thinking, oh, I'm so much better than you because my role is, or I'm not nearly as good as because I just get to, right? That each of us have some role to play, whatever it is. It's our unique, distinct expression of faith. It's our way of contributing to the body of Christ that God has given us. And we need to play that part freely and gladly as part of the body of Christ. And so Paul explains this more fully in verses 4 and 5 with an analogy, the analogy of the human body. This is what he says. For, again explaining, just as we have many members in one body and all the members don't have the same function. So he's talking about our physical human body. We have many members or there are many parts. There's toes and there's feet and there's hands and there's ears and there's eyes, right? There's a heart and there's lungs, right? Like There's all the different parts of our physical body. So just as we have many members or parts in one body and all the members don't have the same function, they, they don't all do the same thing. This is essentially the same point Paul makes in a little more extended version in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the human body makes a good analogy for the body of Christ because there are different parts with different roles to play. So just as we have many body parts and all those body parts don't have the same function, verse 5, so we, meaning we who are Christians, we the church, we who are many, so there's lots of people in the church family, the church body, we who are many, are one body in Christ. And so we have all these different people, but we make one unified body that's all supposed to work together for the good of Jesus and the good of each other. So we're one body in Christ, and individually, we're members of one another. And so we're like parts of one another as one body. We're just like our body parts are individually members of our one body, so each person is a member of the body of Christ. And with that, then, he begins to illustrate what he has in mind in verses 6 through 8. He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us should exercise them accordingly. Just note the translation I'm using, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. That whole phrase isn't in the Greek. They're trying to supply a main clause to this. And I don't know that they really have to. There's no punctuation in Greek. You could almost take the first half of verse 6 and just let it flow out of verse 5, right? Uh, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, colon, and then he lists those off, right? I, I think that's what he's really doing. We don't need to supply a whole main clause. I think since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us is simply amplifying what he means by we're individually members of one another and one body in Christ. And 
And so what he's getting at there in the first half of verse 6 is that as members of the one body, each of us have some gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In fact, the word gift is a derivative of the word grace. It's charismata in Greek, and it's a grace gift. And God in his grace has given each of us some way we can contribute, some ability, some talent, some opportunity, some function that we get to play in the body of Christ. What are some of those? Well, Paul lists off some examples then, beginning in the second half of verse 6 down through verse 8. So he says, if prophecy, well, that's one ability. That's one way we can contribute. If prophecy, then according to the proportion of his faith. And we know that in the churches of Paul in the first century, at least, there, there seemed to be at least some prophets in those churches who spoke on behalf of God and who would receive revelation from God. And remember, they didn't have completed New Covenant revelation, so there was a greater need for some of that. And so there were some of those people. And Paul says here that they should prophesy according to the measure of his faith or the proportion of his faith. And just note that the word his isn't actually in Greek, and I think it actually is a misunderstanding. When he says, uh, according to the proportion of his faith, what he means by proportion of faith, literally the faith, he doesn't mean the individual person's faith. He means the faith once for all delivered, the Christian faith. And so a person needs to prophesy in keeping with the standard of the faith in agreement with or in right relationship to the Christian faith. So the Christian faith is the standard uh, that all prophecies should be weighed by. He goes on in verse 7 and mentions service as another example of a way a person might contribute to the body of Christ. If service, then in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. To exhort is just to call people to action, to encourage them and to build them up in the faith. So if, if he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives, well, do it with liberality, right? Be generous. If you've got extra, give generously. He who leads, do so with diligence. He who shows mercy, which can be taxing and exhausting and tiring being a compassionate caregiver for people. He says, do it with cheerfulness. Do it with cheerfulness. Now, that's not all of them. That's just a, he's just giving a sample of the way each of us, that God may have allotted to each of us a measure of faith, some way to express our faith for the building up of the body of Christ. And there's just some ways that might happen. The overall point of the examples is that each one of us should get on doing whatever we're enabled to do for the sake of the, the body of Christ, for the sake of the community of faith. So whatever we're skilled at, gifted at, whatever opportunities come our way, uh, if we're given those opportunities, well, then we should get on doing the part we can play for the good of the body of Christ. And so, by way of summary, verses 3 through 8, really the basic instruction in this passage is that each one of us should think of ourselves in a sound, realistic sort of way in relation to the whole body of Christ. That is, don't get all high and mighty because you think you're fulfilling one of the more important roles or needs in the church. Don't get all mopey and down in the mouth because you don't think what you're doing is as important or is as good as somebody else. Instead, Gladly and gratefully do whatever part you can for the sake of the whole body and just 
Get on with playing that part. You've been given a part to play, so play your part. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Paul then talks about love, and he just more instruction about living together as the body of Christ. And so, really, the, the grand focus of 9 through 13 is going to be on loving without hypocrisy. He says at the beginning of verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy which is the main clause for all of verses 9 through 13. And so what he's describing in verses 9 through 13 is genuine love. He says, in essence, genuine love is like this, and this should govern the Christian family, our life together. The word translated love is well known. It's agape, but it's really, in a lot of ways, distinctly Christian. There wasn't a wide usage of that word prior to the New Testament. And in some ways, that's helpful because that means the New Testament authors could take this word that's not necessarily tainted or corrupted by all sorts of baggage it's bringing with it, and they can infuse it with distinctly Christian ideas. And so we get the idea of agape love, which is really a self-giving commitment to the well-being of another person. It is a deep bond and a deep attachment. In some ways, it's roughly um, parallel to or synonymous with uh, said in the Old Testament in Hebrew, where that, that regularly describes God's love as steadfast love, uh, uh, abiding love, right? This covenant love, that uh, agape has that same force and same feel in the New Testament. And so it's this strong, abiding commitment of love to the well-being of another person. And that's supposed to be the badge or hallmark of Jesus' followers, right? Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so it's our love for one another that's supposed to mark us out. And hence, Paul here then, as he begins to apply all this theology, says that your life together should be marked by genuine love, love without hypocrisy, love that's authentic and real and genuine. And then what he does in the rest of verses 9 through 13 is seems like he describes what genuine love is like. In fact, all these other phrases that show up are participle phrases in the, the Greek, which means in some way they're loosely attached to and loosely describe genuine, authentic love, love without hypocrisy. So love without hypocrisy is like what? Well, genuine love hates evil and clings to what is good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That is a description of what genuine love is like. Next, he says that genuine love is devoted to one another in brotherly love. And that word brotherly love captures the idea of family-type affection, warmth and affection, the kind of um, love that where it's like, no, we're devoted to one another like siblings, and we're going to be there for one another through thick and thin. So genuine love is devoted to one another in brotherly love. A genuine love gives preference to one another in honor. In other words, I want to see you do well. I want to see you succeed. I'm more interested in you getting uh, uh, accolades and acclaim than me getting them. I give preference to one another in honor. I want to show you honor and make sure you are treated with respect and honor. Next, he says that genuine love is not lagging behind in diligence. It doesn't lack diligence. It's, it's hardworking and it's strong. Genuine love is fervent in spirit, probably meaning the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that it's inflamed by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the idea of fervent in the spirit. Genuine love 
it serves the Lord. It's focused on the Lord and wants to make sure it's honoring and serving Jesus in what it does. Genuine love rejoices in hope and perseveres in tribulation and is devoted to prayer. And so our our loving community of faith is prayerful and hopeful and even persevering when things get hard and when difficult. So genuine love is going to help each other do that. Genuine love for each other stirs that up in each other. So genuine love is that. Verse 13, genuine love contributes to the needs of the saints. And so do we see God's people in need? Well, how can we meet those needs and care for them? And genuine love practices hospitality. Now, some of those we can see more clearly how they're directly connected to genuine love, but that seems to be the, the way verses 9 through 13 works. And since you have all these participle phrases that flow out of or are attached to genuine, authentic love. And so our life together should look like that. It should be... Uh, overseen by genuine love that has all these kinds of descriptors in it, right? That's what life together in the family of God should look like. And then the last piece of chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, really seems to revolve around, at least primarily, those who would do harm to you. And the major point is this, overcome evil by doing good to those who would do harm to you. Paul begins this section by saying, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. To bless is both to speak well of and to wish well of. And so you want good things for those people and you speak good things to and about those people. You bless, he says, and curse not. You don't wish ill on them. You don't pronounce a curse on them. You, you want good for them. You speak good for them. And so bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, verses 15 and 16 there that I just read seem somewhat out of place because they don't fit with what proceeds and what follows, uh, unless perhaps they're describing how the church ought to respond to their members who suffer and experience persecution. Maybe that's what he's getting at, is uh, when, when things are going well in the church, right, with somebody, rejoice with them. If somebody's suffering or having hardship, weep with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. It doesn't mean you agree on everything or think the exact same way. It means you're united in mind, like you have this jointness of mind where it's like, man, you really care for and you feel for each other and you want good things for each other. So be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Haughty means uh, high and mighty, right? All lifted up, arrogant. So don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Be willing to help the lowly, the hurting, the needy is the idea. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't think you're better than you are. Don't think you know more than you are. Now, again, those verses could just be general instructions and and they're good general instructions for us. If they are connected to the context because the preceding verse and the following verses have to do with blessing and cursing and paying back evil. If they have to do with that, you can see a bit of the connection in when people are suffering or maybe when they're getting opposition from the outside, we want to correct them. We want to point out where they're wrong. We want to say, well, maybe you should have, right? And so it's possible that's sort of the connection. Either way, could general instructions for us as 
people, just living with other people, particularly in the body of Christ. So rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Serve those who have needs. Don't be haughty. Don't be high and mighty. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Now, verse 17 through 21 all revolves around, again, dealing with difficult people, people who want to do harm to you or who have harmed you. And so Paul says in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, right? No paybacks. Don't pay back evil for evil. That's just not the way God's people act. So as a Christian, that's just not what we do. As God's people and followers of Jesus, we don't pay back evil for evil. Look at the example of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, and he prayed for those and prayed for their forgiveness as he hung on the cross, right? And so that's our model. That's our pattern. We don't pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's not the way God's people act. Next, Paul says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. So what is good and right and well-known to be right? Well, then respect that, right? Honor that. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, which in some regards uh, reminds me of Jeremiah 29.7, where Jeremiah tells the exiles uh, in Babylon to seek the peace of the city, which means be good citizens, bring harmony and shalom to your city. And um, verse 18 here is similar to that, right? If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Uh, live in harmony with all people, all different kinds of people, as far as it, you can, as far as it depends on you. Verse 19, never take your own re revenge. Coming back to that payback evil for evil. Don't take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, allow God to be the one to right the wrongs of the world. Allow God to be the avenger of wrong and to make things right. And so you leave room for that. You don't take matters into your own hand and you don't uh, take revenge because guess what? There's a good chance you'll get it wrong. God's justice will be perfect. God's vengeance will be perfect. God's payback will be perfect. It'll fit the crime. It'll understand all the facts. It'll be totally right. So you don't need to worry about that. You leave room for God to do that, he says. Leave room for the wrath of God, for the justice of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, which is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. It's God's right, not ours, to bring judicial wrath on earth. Now, chapter 13, what we'll explain one way God does that on earth is through the governing authorities. We'll come to that in our next session. But here he's telling us at an individual level, let's leave room for God to do that. Let's let God be the, the avenger. And if he wants to do that himself, or he wants to do that through the governing authorities, that's God's place to do that. He's got that covered. All right. So vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Verse 20 gives us some more encouragement, more advice, and it does so in the form of a quote from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. It says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. In other words, it's not enough just not to take revenge. In this case, what Paul is telling us by means of this Old Testament quote is, be actively kind to your enemy. Do good to him. And again, this is right in keeping with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us it's not enough just to not do bad to them or not take revenge to them. Instead, you want to be actively kind to them. And so 
Paul, quoting Proverbs, says, feed him, give him a drink, meet his needs, take care of him, do good to him. Um, the point about heaping burning coals on his head doesn't refer to making him hurt with your kindness as if this were like an ultimate form of revenge. Paul wants us to get rid of that whole spirit of wanting to take revenge. We want to love so deeply, even our enemies, that we want to do good for them. So this is not an alternative form of revenge. Rather, what it means is that by your generous and gracious actions, this enemy of yours, this person who wants to harm you or who has harmed you, may actually feel remorseful, maybe even ashamed of being unkind to you. And uh, maybe your kind deeds will soften his or her heart up and maybe even win them over. You don't know that, but still just be genuinely kind to him. That's the idea of this. And so Paul summarizes here Verse 21, he summarizes 14 through 21 with this line. Do not be overcome by evil. Like, don't let evil and the meanness of society and the hostility of other people and the harm that other people did, don't let that overwhelm you to where you just respond in kind. Do not be overcome by evil. But how do we deal with evil as God's people, as followers of Jesus? Here's how we deal with evil. Overcome evil with good. That's the way we do it. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we overcome evil by actively doing good for people, even those who have wronged us. We feed them. We give them drink if they need it. We meet their tangible needs. We care for and practically love our enemies by showing kindness to them. That's how we take evil out of circulation. That's how we overcome evil with good. And man, is that a challenging standard for us. This is a whole lot more than just holding your tongue or don't retaliate, don't retaliate. What we're called to do here is bless rather than curse. We're called to do good rather than uh, just not retaliate. We're called to meet their needs and care for them. And this is not like a, a minor clause in the way of Jesus. This is a, a radical and yet central element of the lifestyle that Jesus calls us to. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus tells us to go the second mile, to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to do good to those who want to harm us. Over and over again in the teaching of Jesus and his apostles, we are called to actually overcome evil by doing good. We're to do good to those who want to harm us. That is our way of winning the victory over evil, laying down our lives and serving even our enemies. And so as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, our life together in the body of Christ should be like each one of us playing our part. We should be marked by genuine, authentic love. And even in our relationship with our opponents, our enemies, those who want to do harm to us, there should be goodness and kindness and active love towards them as well. This, this is what it looks like to be a transformed community of faith that brings glory to God as our spiritual service of worship.